God's Word in 2 Peter and chapter 2, and the reading together all the verses of the chapter. That way we'll read from the beginning to the end of 2 Peter, Lord willing, concluding next week Sunday. We look together at this, and you'll note very specifically Second uh, Peter's great theme uh, to beware of the false prophet, beware of the false teacher. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. 
For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones they have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from holy commandment to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to, wa- to her wallowing in the mire. Well, people of God... Uh, It is a chapter that is filled with uh, beware of the false prophet. Uh, We we might uh, be more inclined to uh, want uh, a sermon on John 3 or 1 Peter 1 and 3, Ephesians 1 or Psalm 100, Romans 8, 2 Peter 2, chapter 2. Preaching the full counsel of God is what God commands. We look at favorite verses, and we probably don't have too many favorite verses from Second Peter 2, though many of us may actually remember a dog returns to his own vomit, since it's both seen and it is something that sticks to your head. But a favorite text? Probably not. We have a tendency to look to that which we find to be the favorite. But as is abundantly clear from the emphasis on false teaching in a book that's filled with very positive declarations, if we think in terms of positive and negative, which maybe we shouldn't even think in those terms, the whole book is positive for the people of God, is it not? We recognize that we have the same tendency towards singing. We don't often want to hear the whole counsel of God, just the favorite parts. And so, if we were going to think of Psalm 89, verse 1, from which we get that song that I'm sure that many of you children know, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known thy faithfulness to all generations. And if you do it right, you can do it in a, uh, you know, in, in uh, sections and we can uh, repeat it and inter- interact. And it could be a, a great song to sing. I love that song. Uh, but in uh, Psalm 89, that psalm has great testimonies concerning uh, the work of God, but it also has a number of verses that clearly declare the judgment of God. Uh, Psalm 89, verse uh, 35 uh, declares, Once I have sworn in my holiness I will not lie to David, 
His seed shall endure forever in His throne as the sun before Me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. And then there is the reflection on the judgment of God coming against such a lifestyle. How many of us will say we should add a second verse to that? text from Psalm 89, I will sing of the judgment of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known thy wrath to all generations. We're going to add that verse to that song. Second Peter chapter 2 adds to the whole counsel of God clear teaching about the nature of false teaching and its destructive consequences. And so, we would hear that word tonight, that there are false teachers. And first we note their presence, and then their teaching, and then the fact that they have followers, and, and their strategy. So, the false teachers are very clear. We have that glorious declaration, verse 21 of chapter 1, that we concluded with this morning, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And you would think, apostolic witness. The apostles are present on the face of the earth. Jesus has just been revealed. He has been raised. He has ascended into heaven. The the, the church of Jesus Christ, starting with a small number, 120, it's only decades old. How could there be a false teacher there? How could there be false teaching in such a place, under such circumstances? But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, false teachers, with an emphasis on the false teaching that will be present, false prophets, as Psalm 89 declared. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, the Lord declares the glories of the gospel in this way. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But the Lord is condemning those who are hearing the prophet Jeremiah in verse 15. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets in Babylon Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go with you into exile. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, pestilence, 
I will make them like fig, figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. To be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord. This was the people of God forsaking the Word of God, and God says, I will bring the pestilence upon them, and that would be like a disease, because they failed to heed the Word of the Lord. They're going after false prophets. And then the declaration is, there were false prophets. Jeremiah said there were false prophets in the very last days of Old Testament revelation. There were false prophets throughout the whole history of the Old Testament. There will also be false teachers among you. That's the present and the time of Peter, and it's the reality today as well. There will be false teachers among you. And, and the sad thing here is that it says from uh, there will be a teachers among you. They will be those who you would have assumed were true prophets of God. And we're, uh, Peter is warning the church about these false teachers with their false doctrine. It is something that was clearly present already in the New Testament church. In just speaking uh, to the church in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 29 and 30, uh, Paul is recognizing and exhorting the Ephesian elders, and he's saying, as soon as I leave, what's going to happen? As soon as I leave, for I know this, that after my departure, departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. There will be these false teachers from among you. Maybe some of the people who are hearing Paul say these very things are going to turn into false teachers. So the very first thing we need to recognize is that this is the reality. That there will be false teachers. There will be false teachers for in, among the, in the United Reformed Church. They will arise. Personally, I don't know of any at this moment. I don't know of anyone propagating heresy within the URC. But I suspect that's going to happen. I just... I, I know it, and, and it will happen, just like Paul said to the Ephesian elders... So it will happen within the context of the URC. It will happen in the context of every church, every denomination that would seek to be faithful. It will happen. 
And one of the things you have to determine is whether you love the truth of God more than you love the children of the the next generation who go after false teaching. Which do you love more? Which do you say, we will compromise to keep our false teaching children or our false teaching grandfather, we will compromise to keep them within the fold or we will recognize them as false teachers and remove them. It is a very difficult thing to remove a false teacher from a community of faith well established when the false teacher arises from among you whether that's a local congregation or a federation or a denomination. We must rejoice in those who are faithful to bring the Word, but we must recognize the distinct possibility, the probability, the inevitability of the false teachers who will come among us. What is it? What is their teaching? They secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves with destruction. And, and some of the descriptions that are given in about the false teacher, we we have we can see patterns of false teaching that have come up throughout church history. One of the patterns is really seen in verse 21 where it says that no prophecy ever came by the will of man or no prophecy is of any private interpretation, personal interpretation. There's a whole false teaching method in the present moment and it's always been there because it says it's right here. It is not a matter of one's own personal interpretation of a text or a biblical event. It's not your own interpretation. There is one interpretation. There is one truth of God's Word. Not many truths out of the same event or, or some, well, sometimes events have multiple truths connected to them like the cross of Christ. But there is biblical truth. And, but yet many people come and say, well, the Bible's difficult and, and everybody has their own interpretation. Everybody has their own interpretation. In the last two years, I know of a, a church that left, uh, the Christian Reformed Church because a man attending Calvin Seminary was taught in his hermeneutics class. That's how to approach the Bible. He said, never preach in such a way that you're dogmatic about your interpretation of the verse because everybody has their own interpretation and every interpretation is as valid as any other. The consequences of that teaching was a church left the CRC only a couple of years ago. Is, is that what Second Peter 1 says? Everyone has their own interpretation of the text. But that has been a common heresy 
false teaching from the beginning of the New Testament church, from the beginning of the church in the Old Testament to this present day. It just hasn't always been so radically proclaimed. No, people of God, there is one interpretation of every text that is right because it is what it says. And there are many that could be wrong. And a faithful preacher will seek in every way to preach the text as God intends it to be heard and as He interprets us. We don't so much interpret Him. And so the very first attack is the attack on the Word of God. You're a false prophet. You're bringing a false word. You compromise the Word itself. But it's not always so apparent. Sometimes it's deceptive. One of the heresies that has arisen since I've begun my pastorate in the last 30 years, uh, when I was in seminary, the, the heresy of the day in the big mainline seminaries was God is dead. That false theology is now dead. You never hear anybody say God is dead anymore. But when, back in the early 80s, that was like, the main, if you were really a with-it theologian, you would be contemplating God is dead. You know, he created the world and then he, he, uh, he brought himself into non-existence. Well, that was for the moment. We don't hear that anymore. One of the key false teachings that is among us is a, a teaching that denies the Lord who bought us. The Lord. It, it demise the, the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. It, it denies the fact that we have to be purchased and bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because it declares that the word faith in the promise really means nothing more than to be a faithful people, to, to be good, do good works. Faith means good works. So the destructive heresy is to take the word faith and redefine it as good works. I don't know how you do that. And read the text. Dr. Venema had a writer from Mid-America Reform Seminary wrote a very in-depth, quite uh, uh, theological tr- uh, book attacking it. And then he wrote some articles in Outlook magazine called The Federal Vision or The New Perspective on Paul. And we think that The Federal Vision had some some implications of that. It's called The New Perspective on Paul, where where the word faith is redefined as faithfulness, which is unfaithfulness. It's denying the Lord who bought them. But that's not the only way that in the present day, errors articulate and reflect a denial of the Lord who bought them. Who bought them. 
You see, Jesus Christ died for your sin, but he purchased something. He, he paid. It was, it had, there had to be a payment. And that payment was that Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God against sin. It was a payment. He endured the wrath. He endured the pain. He suffered the shame. And there are those who say, a talk like that is cosmic child abuse. Yep, that's what it is. Cosmic child abuse. God abusing His Son. That's, that's what that is. You don't want to go down that path. So you don't want to say, Christ died and paid the penalty that He endured the wrath. That's really nothing new. It's really nothing new. A denial of the Lord who bought them. It can be illustrated by looking at 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 2, verse 2 says this. We'll start with one. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, you say, well, that must not be too complicated. The theme of that comes out, little children know that your sins are forgiven. But it's more than knowing your sins are forgiven. It's to know that He is the propitiation for our sins. Now let me read for you. If you have your Bibles open to that text, you'll see it. The NIV translation of that. Verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice. Well, the word atoning is not in the text, and the word sacrifice is not in the original. And so, what they do is they deny the payment of the sin, and the payment is the enduring of the wrath of God against our sin. They Now, atoning sacrifice could be that, but it's not specifically that. The death of Christ is an atoning sacrifice. But it's also a propitiation. But you can deceive people by changing even the name. Look at the RSV. Not a very popular translation anymore. The RSV translates this, Little children, I am writing to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and He is the expiation for our sins. Then you say, what is the difference? Propitiation, atoning sacrifice, expiation? Fact is, people of God, all three are true. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the expiation for our sin. You know what expiation means? Some of you are going... What in the world does that mean? Expiation. Expiation means little children know that your sin has been removed. Expiation is about the removal of sin. That's true. It's true. But what about propitiation? What about enduring the wrath of God? 
the translators of the RSV said, we, we, we reject propitiation. They specifically did reject it. We're going to put in expiation. Every time the word propitiation appears, we don't want to use that word. Because we reject the concept that Jesus died and paid the penalty by enduring the wrath of God on the cross. So we're going to do away with it. And they did. Deceptive, bringing in deceptive heresies. They didn't come out and say, Jesus didn't die. They didn't even say, Jesus didn't take your sin away. He just said, the Father would never be angry with you. And the Father wasn't angry with Jesus on the cross. His anger and wrath are never displayed. He's a God of love. And we don't want to talk about a God of anger. And so they got rid of the word and the concept, although very difficult in some other contexts. An atoning sacrifice is simply weak. It just doesn't do the job. To talk about the fact that Christ endured the wrath of God on our behalf. You see, there's all kinds of ways that people bring in deceptive heresies. Mormonism redefines almost every term dealing with salvation, but they use them all. They use them all. There's a whole other theme of false teaching that's connected with the declaration denying the Lord who bought them. He buys us, and now what do we claim? What do we say? What do we think and declare? Mentioned already, it it is that Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. I am bought with a price. I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. I have been bought. And now I am His. His in every way. The Lord, the word Lord tied to bought here is not a word that is just kind of flip a coin and do we use the word Lord or the word Christ or Jesus? No, Lord and bought that I I was a slave. I was enslaved to the devil and I have been bought and now I am a slave of Christ. He is my Lord. And that is constantly attacked. The the Lordship of Jesus Christ would be denied because people simply want to do what they want to do and they don't care what the Lord says about it. They don't care. They reject Lordship. They're supposedly in the argumentation for the destruction of baby in the wombs. A word that uh, people say would be so much better to use than pro-abortion. It is, I am pro-choice. People of God, both those terms are anti-Christian. Of course, pro-abortion is anti-Christian. But pro-choice, that term is philosophically as anti-Christian as the term pro-abortion. Because it's given, the, it's given legitimacy to a mindset that says, I am the Lord of my life. 
I am the captain of my ship. I can determine to do whatever I want to do with this body of mine, whether male or female. I can determine if I'm male or if I'm female or if the life inside of my womb continues. Because I'm Lord. I am not my own. Christ is my Lord. The New Testament people of God were put to the stake. They were, they were fed to the lions because they did not, because they refused to declare Caesar is Lord. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord of my life. Which became the primary confession that led to their persecution, but not ultimately their destruction. Because it's not ultimately the child of God who stands, who is destroyed. False teaching in every way destroys. It's the destroyer. Yes, the false teaching that I can do whatever I want to do with my body is a perfect example. What does it destroy? It destroys a baby in the womb. But believe me, people of God, the false teaching that declares I can do whatever I want to do with my body is just as destructive. It's the foundation that supposedly gives legitimacy to the act. But both that false teaching and the act that arises out of it are both filled with sin and rebellion against God. And it ends in death. It ends in destruction. False teaching never ends in joy and peace and life and confidence before our God. It does not happen. It is self-destroying and it is under God's hand of judgment. Both. It self-destructs which is a part of the very order and fabric of a created world in, that God made, but it also is under the direct judgment of God. Now, there are a few Christian pastors who've declared something like this. The coronavirus is a judgment of God against the United States. It reminds me, of the time in my ministry when the AIDS epidemic was was growing and, and some Christian pastors said, AIDS is the judgment of God against homosexuality. And then there was, even within Christian circles, I can't say that, can't say that. I always say, well, I said, that's that's absolutely true. But the fact is, all death is the judgment of God against sin. Apart from being in Christ, in Christ our death is not judgment. It is from glory to glory. But apart from Christ, it is the judgment of God against sin. People say, you know, people are filled with fear because of coronavirus and the possibility of death. And I go, oh, that's great. You should be filled with fear. You should fear dying of a car accident. You should be filled with fear of death, period, apart from Christ. Why aren't you living in total terror? 
It is only in Christ that we can have ultimate peace in the face of death. 2,500,000 people died not connected to coronavirus at all last year. And the world is worried about a small percentage of them dying of a virus when they should be terrified of death itself and the judgment of God. And they're not! But all sin brings about destruction. All sin brings about death. All false teaching results in death and destruction. self Destruction and God's judgment against it. And that destruction is because of the seriousness of the error. The seriousness of the error is declared in our text. It says they follow their destructive ways because of whom the, the, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In Scripture, it's very unusual to use the word blaspheme against truth. And we always blaspheme God and the name of God. That's But when we hold forth false teaching, it's the same thing as blaspheming God. It's blasphemy. Because the truth of God and the Word of God are so closely connected that you can't honor one and dishonor the other. And so, people of God... We are called by our God to hold fast to the truth, to expose the error. Because apart from that error, we will have no peace with ourselves, no peace with our God, no peace with our neighbor, our church, our nation, our race, or our economic status. But in Christ, in Christ, There is not destruction, but there is life. Yes, our our text focuses on the false teacher. It's not the focal point of every sermon. It is part of the balance of the whole counsel of God that must be proclaimed. But we praise our God. Because it doesn't matter what the false teacher does with God's Word. God's Word will stand. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and following, we read these words, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever." Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that we may be aware of the false prophets, that we may hold fast the truth, that 
we, O Lord, may be moved to pity for those living in destruction and under Your wrath, knowing that we too ought to have suffered Your wrath. For we too have been sinners and far from Your way. But we thank You for the power of the Word, the power of the Gospel, that we have been born again, not of corruptible, but of incorruptible through the Word of God. O Heavenly Father, may we hold fast that Word. May our faith be focused on that Word and all of its promises that we might live. That we might live with all joy, with all peace, with all confidence, with all bearing testimony of the truth to a lost and dying and a world that is self-destructive. Father, may we be found to be the people of God living as a light in the world, shining in the darkness. May we, O God, be used by You to bring others through that transformation of grace and into the fold of the church of Jesus Christ, having been saved by grace. O Lord God, we pray these things in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's respond turning together to number five. Number five.